We believe real, true financial planning lies in helping with these details that really create significant value in people's lives. Um, and, and so the example I want to share with everybody today is, is really my favorite thing to have the ability to help people through. office in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome to The Ballast Life, a series of conversations highlighting respected professionals, community leaders, and important topics that are necessary to achieving financial cohesion. Hi everyone, John Boardman, founder and CEO of Ballast. Thrilled today to have our five advocates here in the office who contributed to our Athenium project. We just completed what was a, a three-year project that we embarked on uh, to essentially create a financial planning guide that covers the 12 most important aspects of a financial plan. Over that three-year period of time, uh, the five of us uh, worked together to write um, what ended up being about 70 entries covering these 12 areas. And so what we wanted to do today was come together and each share our favorite entry uh, that we submitted um, to the compilation, again, that we just completed. Um, so we're going to go around the room. It's a virtual room today. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we'd love to be sitting across from, the, uh, from each other in the conference room. But today we're going to go around our, um, our virtual room and I'm going to have everyone give a summary and then we'll have a little conversation on each, each of the five topics. So Frank, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks, John. Um, so article I wrote about, uh, it was called Simplifying Your Budgeting to One Key Number, and this was uh, back in March of 2018. Um, but budgeting in general, I, I think there's this big uh, you know, negative connotation when people hear the word budgeting or budget, and it's not a negative. Don't think of it as you can only spend this much. You know, it's, it's really just an understanding of your cash flow. It's a very, at, at its core, it's just a basic fundamental building block of all financial planning. So whether you just started your first job out of school or whether you're about to retire, knowing your monthly budget, your cash flow, your ins and outs, it's going to allow you to create a financial plan. And whether that's for retirement in general or for a very specific one-off goal, um, but then you're going to have a higher likelihood of being able to achieve the goal. You know, so it's great to say, if I say the XYZ for this amount of time, you know, I can end up with that much money. But you need to know whether it's realistic for you to actually be able to say the XYZ, you know, whether that is, is a realistic thing to do in the context of all your other financial needs and wants. Um, so again, this, this article that I wrote, simplifying your budgeting down to a key number, the idea there was, uh, especially for income earners with uneven income, so maybe it's a salesman, maybe it's a small business owner, or um, you know, a solo practitioner attorney where you're not having the even monthly cash flows, how do you deal with that? How do you work with that on a month-to-month basis without having, you know, that steady stream of income coming in. So the idea was that you would, you know, put, collect all your, your income into a savings account and then kind of knowing your budget, send yourself a paycheck from your savings account over to your checking account each month. Um, so again, it's important to know that first fundamental building block of what your budget is um, to be able to do that. And then, over the amounts that you save in your savings account over your emergency fund, whatever that is determined to be, you kind of have predetermined goals earmarked already. And you can do this on a percentage basis. So maybe you'd say 50% goes towards paying off 
my mortgage or my student debts, 25% goes towards that house project, 25% goes to a vacation. And then, you know, you would kind of analyze that every quarter. Um, and so if you're you know, buying a plane ticket, you're not feeling like you're, you're wasting your money because you plan for it ahead. And if you're writing a big lump sum check to pay off debt, you don't feel bad about it either because you plan for it. It's part of the, part of the plan. Um, but even for people there that have that flat, you know, even reliable monthly cash flow or monthly income, there's a lot of aspects of that idea that can still help you achieve your goals and your budgeting goals. So, you know, pay yourself first, save for retirement, um, pay your monthly bills and expenses, and then allocate the excess to other goals. And so that's kind of a, kind of the general gist of the article there, um, simplifying your budget down to a key number. So Frank, I, I think that's really good information. You know, we talk to clients all the time about budgets and, you know, some have budgets down to the penny and some have general budgets um, and, and some don't have a budget at all. What do you think, what are some of the underestimated benefits of having a budget and sticking to the budget and the discipline around, around using a budget? Yeah, d- discipline, great word. I mean, it, it's the behavioral finance, right? It's the training yourself to live within your means. Um, when you do that, when, you, when you've got the budget and you're good about doing it and you know what your ins and outs are, you're gonna avoid that lifestyle inflation. So for those with the uneven income in the high months, you know, like a bonus month, for example, um, if you're disciplined and if you've got that good behavioral finance, you're not gonna go out and you know, spend a whole bunch of money that month. And then in the next month, you're, you're eating um, peanut butter and jelly because you spent all your money, you know, you haven't budgeted properly. You're also going to avoid bad debts, you know, avoid credit card debts and running up the bill in months where there's not enough in the budget. And then you're also, you're much more likely to achieve your goals. If you've got a plan in place, you've got a plan for that money and it goes there automatically, you know, at the beginning of the month, rather than hoping that it's there at the end of the month. And I think all those benefits are so huge and they can really help people on any time and kind of the financial spectrum. And I know we've all seen people, of wide ages and income ranges who just haven't had a good budgeting process. So, you know, what do y'all think is the best way to kind of start making that a habit and and start getting into that concept of a budget of some form? Yeah. So, you know, I think at the beginning too, it's important to know that it can be as detailed or as general as you want. And so as Andy alluded to, we have some clients that have it literally down to the penny um, some of it's just, you know, ballpark this much on that, ballpark that much on this other category. To get started, I mean, I think a lot of us know in general terms that we're going to have these fixed costs every month. So whether that's your rent or your mortgage, um, whether it's your utilities are usually going to be relatively flat. If you've got monthly premiums, those are going to be relatively flat. So that's kind of a good just baseline starting point. And then from there, you know, you can look at your credit card statement over the past year and look and, you know, is there a general average of what you're spending each month? And then if you want to go break down further, what are you spending on, you know, within your credit card? Are you going to make a category for food, for entertainment, for shopping, for whatever it is? And then you can go again as detailed as you want. Is it food? Is it going to Kroger or is it going to out to lunch? Is it going out to dinner? And, you know, you can really kind of get as detailed as you want. It doesn't have to be as daunting of a task as, as it probably is in a lot of people's minds. You know, it can be as detailed as you want to go. Um, but it really, it's a, it's a great, useful tool. It just has, that, again, a fundamental building block so that you just know what's realistic, what you can do, 
um, to achieve your goals and you'll have a higher likelihood of actually achieving those goals. Yeah, I think I think the uh, you know budget has such a restrictive connotation to the to the word, but what what I've noticed, and I think we could all agree uh, that we've noticed in clients is that when they do effectively create a budget and stick to it, it's it can be actually liberating and confidence inspiring because they they're able to enjoy the money that they're able to spend on things like vacations and um, sort of discretionary items because they know they're doing all of the necessary things that are impactful to their long-term plan. So that's great. So that was Frank Yoswick, our director of estate planning and tax. Um, next, we're going to go with Brian Burton, uh, who is our uh, director of portfolio strategy. Thanks, John. Uh, again, this is Brian Burton. I'm director of portfolio strategy and financial advocate. Um, I chose an article um, for this podcast to, to discuss on saving uh, for retirement versus debt reduction. Um, I, cho- I chose this article in particular because uh, one of the questions that I get asked um, most often, particularly from our, our younger clients, um, is how can I save for retirement uh, when I have all of these recurring debt payments? Uh, and it seems, you know, that question seems very basic, um, but it, it doesn't always have a, a straightforward answer. And of course, in an ideal situation, we would like to pay down debt and save for retirement simultaneously. Um, that's not always the case. For those that are struggling to make payments, uh, it's important that we prioritize uh, paying off the debts. Uh, a couple examples. So one, uh, anyone that has high interest rate consumer debt, um, or for those that may be feeling overwhelmed by outstanding debts where their mental health uh, is at risk, it's probably prudent to pay off the debts before saving. Um, hopefully it's not an either or dilemma, uh, but that is the case for many folks. And there can also be situations where saving for retirement uh, should take precedence over paying down debt. Uh, for example, everyone that has access to an employer match uh, on a 401k plan or, or some similar plan uh, should take advantage of that benefit. Uh, also, if your only debt is a home mortgage, so uh, there may be some advantages to saving your cash versus paying off the balance. Uh, things like tax deductibility, uh, tax deferral on retirement contributions, um, and don't forget about the uh, importance of compounding returns uh, on your investment dollars. Uh, If you are fortunate enough to have extra cash after the bills are paid, um, hopefully you're thinking about a few of these these things I'm going to mention. So number one, have you built an adequate emergency fund? For us, we'd like to see three to six months of living expenses. Uh, Number two, have you paid off your high interest debt? Third, are you at least getting the full match uh, on your 401k or similar plan? Uh, fourth, if you're eligible, are you contributing to a Roth IRA or have you considered Roth conversions? Uh, and fifth, are you saving at least 10 to 15% of your income towards retirement? And lastly, are you rewarding yourself for the hard work? We don't want people to resent their budget. As Frank mentioned earlier, if you've met a goal, reward yourself. Just don't blow it out of the water. Uh, so th- those are my uh, highlights for, from the article uh, that I submitted that I wanted to talk about. Do you, um, you know, I think, in, do you notice in those conversations with clients that their willingness or unwillingness to take risk 
um, impacts how they think about this decision between investing and debt reduction? Yeah, I mean, everyone views debt differently, right? So I have clients that don't mind carrying a large amount of debt. Uh, they know they can easily make the payments and most often they use the debt properly uh, as a catalyst to build wealth. Uh, th those folks tend to be a little higher on the risk spectrum, so it can take on a little bit more risk than others. Uh, on the flip side, we have many clients that can't sleep at night if they have even one small outstanding debt. Uh, they tend to view debt as a hindrance uh, instead of a catalyst and more often than not, uh, these clients have a bit of an aversion to risk. So we, we definitely consider a client's risk tolerance when advising on these types of decisions. Brian, recently we've seen uh, a few ups and a few downs in the market. Um, you know, the volatility is, is back, as they've been saying, and, and as, as anyone can really see. How do these market conditions affect or how can they dictate how or when you might make a decision on debt reduction and investing? Yeah, I mean, I Absolutely, market conditions uh, can dictate you know when we advise clients on saving versus uh, debt reduction decisions, um, particularly when the cash that that's used to make the debt payments or payoffs is coming from market-based investments. Um, so, for example, if we've seen a nice run-up in markets, some solid appreciation in account values, uh, it, that may present an opportunity to capture some of the gains and pay down debts. Uh, and on the other hand, if we're in a bear market, for example. Uh, it may not be beneficial to sell assets without giving them the opportunity to recover in price. So, yes, these decisions should be made uh, with market conditions in mind. I mean, I've noticed that over the last couple of years with markets, you know, up until the spring of this year being fairly cooperative, uh, just talking with clients who are, you know, buying a second home or had had a plan of paying off their mortgage and, We've advocated using favorable market conditions, favorable market returns as an opportunity to pay that off. So that, I think that's a that's a great that's a great thing to consider because um, if you do it at the wrong time, it could be detrimental to someone's long term plan. Yeah, I just throw a bug in there that that's one of those things that the more we know about your situation, the more we can help because those people we've been having those conversations about potentially paying off the mortgage and we're able to get it done in the up market. How beneficial has that been to all those people? I don't think any of us have had a client come back and say, oh, I wish I still had that mortgage payment, you know, on the balance sheet. So, you know, anything that, that we can know on the front end is just more helpful to the relationship. Yeah, agreed. Now I want to pass it over to Andy Reynolds, our Chief Operating Officer and Financial Advocate. Thanks, John. Um, so for my article, it's going to focus on a certain uh, segment of time, but really it's a process that we try to take clients through no matter where they are in life. And, you know, we believe real true financial planning lies in helping with these details that really create significant value in people's lives. Um, and, and so the example I want to share with everybody today is, is really my favorite thing to have the ability to help people through because I think it does create significant value. Um, and it really has to do with a retiree who's pre-RMD age or pre-social security. So they need income, but they don't have any source of income coming in right now. So we're going to lean on the portfolio. And the same thing can be done when you're saving money and when you have IRA money. 
um, outside of, of your 401k and, and um, you have other investment money as well. But this article focuses on, you have two buckets of money, IRA money, pre-tax money, and a taxable account. And what we really like to do is, is in this window of opportunity, have people really think, and, and we do a lot of the, the planning, but really think through what bucket of money they're going to take when they start using that money as, as early income. And a lot of people will just simply have a philosophy of really one side or the other. Take out all your, your IRA money, take out your pre-tax money, use that money to spend because that makes your RMDs lower later. And it also makes your uh, qualified pre-tax account become smaller down the road. And it saves that hopefully less highly taxed account. I think that's a good option. The other option is, and some philosophically believe you spend the taxable account first and you defer the tax as long as possible. So if you think about somebody who retires at 60, you may have the ability to defer any income tax in your IRA for another 12 years. And I think there's good thought processes behind that as well. What we try to do is merge the two and add a little twist to it. So instead of, ultimately we want to get the money out of the IRA in the least taxable environment possible. So instead of just purely drawing from one or the other, what we like to do is draw from the pre draw from the taxable account for income. And in some cases, depending on how much income you need and how much basis is in the account, you may even be able to take that money out completely tax free. Um, and that depends and that just depends on how capital gains taxes work at that point. So we draw down that account, but at the same time, we want to create a taxable event so that we fill in the low tax brackets. So if we think about how taxes work, a lot of people quote their effective tax rate, which is the blend of all the marginal tax buckets. We wanna fill in those low marginal tax brackets first, and we don't wanna miss that opportunity over those potentially 12 years. So what we'll do is instead of drawing down the IRA, which is what the, the people who are in that camp what they believe in, which we believe in that from a tax standpoint. But instead of just drawing down the IRA, we want to convert the IRA. So we're creating the taxable event. We're filling up the low income tax buckets for an income tax standpoint, but then we're converting it. So at the end of the day, looking forward potentially 12 years, we've taken money out at a low tax bracket. We've reduced our IRA, our pre-tax exposure, but then what we've created is this new bigger bucket of Roth IRA money, which then replaces the pre-tax money. And all future growth on that under current law is completely tax-free. There are some rules. You got to have the account open for five years um, to get that tax-free treatment. But it's really a no-brainer idea to fill up low tax brackets so that when you look over your entire lifetime, you're paying hopefully the least amount of tax possible on your money that you use for income. Same thing can be done earlier on in working years. Um, we really try to do that with people as well when we have the opportunity to. And you make some great points. Uh, we, you know, we, we at Ballast have been, you know, a long time proponents uh, of Roth dollars, uh, even prior to the SECURE Act and the elimination of the stretch treatment on inherited IRAs. Um, 
Why do you think the, some, we've had some pushback from the professional community uh, on Roth conversions and Roth IRAs in general? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, we have some CPAs, I think, and accountants who, who really are, are not excited about Roth money. Um, and I think where that stems from is their relationship with how they work with their clients. You know, if you think about when you drop off your taxes to your account or your CPA, the best possible outcome results in the highest refund, right? So no one's super excited to give their taxes to their CPA and the CPA comes back and says, good news, you owe money. Um, everybody wants a refund. So I think there's this ingrained desire to have a result of the lowest taxes paid in a given calendar year. And, and rightfully so, that's what people are looking for. I don't know anybody who will ever come into us or a CPA and say, hey, this year I wanna pay more taxes. I'm excited for that. So I think just naturally there's, there's a, de a desire to have a lower tax bill. I think also when you think about tax deferral and compounding interest on the tax deferral, there's a natural tendency to value that and, and we certainly value that. Ultimately, I think it's our goal and our role as a financial advisor looking not just in a given calendar year, but looking over a lifetime to consider how we get that tax deferred money out of the tax deferred account. And what, what we have seen over and over again are, are these retirees in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and these RMDs become so much bigger. Um, you know, it, it, it ultimately results in people being potentially even a higher tax bracket, not trying to predict what tax rates will look like, but if we can methodically accept that we're going to prepay some taxes and we're going to do that over a, a stretched period of time, we've really found the math works out in, in people's interest. But it's, it's not an all or nothing thing. It's, it's got to be, and I think that's also another thing. Some people look at it as either Roth or pre-tax. You know, it's a combination and it's a lever that you move depending on the situation. Andy, I love that phrase and you said prepaying your taxes. Uh, you know, and, and that's effectively what you're doing with a Roth uh, account. And, and so we know the benefits then of, you know, prepaying your taxes and then with the Roth account, you get the future tax green cash flow. But what are some of the other long-term benefits of Roth money? Yeah, so as Brian mentioned, I mean, we're, we're really big advocates of, of Roth money. And I think we, we would all agree that in almost any client situation, they should have some degree of Roth money. And, and we can find a benefit of some degree of Roth money. And that's whether you're 22 years old or whether you're 92 years old. Um, you know, generally, we find that it will help out a situation. And really where that comes down to is there's some hard math behind it, but also there's some soft science behind it. So what Roth money affords you the ability to do is, is one, hedge future tax rates. You know, we are in a low tax environment. We don't want to predict that taxes are going to go up, but a lot of people think they will. So if they do, we have prepaid some of those taxes and we're hedging against future tax rates which also reduces variables in retirement. So when we think about retirement income planning, if all of a sudden tax rates go up by 
we've effectively just reduced income by 5%, reduced your purchasing power by 5%. And as good as we can be at financial planners and money managers, there's nothing you can do about that. It's, it's a direct impact. So if we have some of that tax already prepaid, it's a variable that we can reduce or eliminate going into retirement. And that's, that's really good. It also allows you to pay tax from your earned income as you're earning it rather than from your nest egg. So when you go into retirement and you have an account balance, a lot of people feel good. You know, I got this much money, you know, I checked the box, time to retire. Well, yeah, but that much money is not ultimately really how much you have. You, owe, you, you can spend a portion of that money. And so with that being said also, you know, it allows you to, to what we were mentioning before, prepaying your taxes, pay some of your taxes as you go, which hopefully over your lifetime results in a lower lifetime effective tax rate. I think that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve is a lifetime lower effective tax rate. It also gives you a bucket of money for a large purchase. So we see so many people going into retirement who want to buy a house or you know, want to gift and help out children or want to go do this huge family vacation and they have to take out a large lump sum. You know, maybe it's 50, maybe it's 100, maybe it's a half a million dollars. If it's all pre-tax money, that half a million dollars now sits on top of your income for that year. I don't think anybody's going to buy the house but then not spend less money over the next couple of years. They're probably going to maintain their, their living expenses. So it gives you a bucket of money to where you can take out tax-free for any large one-time expenses. Um, there's also a, a benefit to it, again, from, from really a financial planning behavioral finance standpoint, where if you think about an equation of early living versus retirement living, it's really one of the few things that benefits both. It causes you to live on less because you're paying some of your taxes early, which then benefits you later in life in two different ways. One, you've prepaid your taxes. Two, you've taught yourself to live on less, which again, going back to your budget conversation, Frank, it causes you to more so live within your means. And if anything happens, it's, you know, that money you were saving, that's, that's extra cash flow you could have later in life. Um, so there's really, there's a lot of benefits it's not the simple benefits that, you know, the, the stereotypical benefits of Roth and, and what we think is just for young people, it's just for low income people. Um, th there's a lot of benefits to Roth. Um, and the one other one I'll leave you with is from a behavioral finance standpoint, a lot of people will max out whatever that threshold is. And it's an arbitrary number. But, you know, when you're maxing something out, you feel good about yourself. You feel like you, you're doing what you should be doing. If we max out Roth versus max out pre-tax, ultimately you're resulting in more purchasing power. So if, if, if we're working with the type of client who likes maxing things out, it's really an opportunity to, to facilitate more purchasing power down the road. I was reading... You know, and we've all seen these articles over the last uh, several years talking about this retirement crisis in the United States and about how so many retirees are so, you know, grossly underfunded, which I think is generally accurate. But what I've also noticed with young people, uh, and this is probably just uh, inherent in the type of client and, and uh, prospective client that we're working with, is that 
they're focusing on saving in their retirement plans and they're focusing on trying to max out as soon as possible. And we have seen this in some of our clients that are now past RMD age where these retirement account balances are so significant that their RMD now is exceeding what their income was while they were working. And I think if you, if someone is adequately developing a plan earlier in their working life, that likelihood is only going to increase. Therefore, the most serious people are going to end up with the largest balances and therefore potentially the biggest tax issues to come with it. So um, it's, it's just something um, that really, uh, to your point, Andy, all good points, the, the, uh, I, th- I think people need to open up their mind to what, where Roth is, is appropriate. And I think there's definitely a, a portion of the, I mean, the, the retirement issue is definitely a huge headwind for our country. Um, but there's also a, a demographic where they're going to be saving a lot and then ultimately they're going to inherit a lot too. So now all of a sudden, if you have parents who live longer and maybe you're in that nearing RMD age and then you also inherit a big pre-tax retirement account from the generation above you, I mean, you may be forced to be drawing on really high income levels and, you know, good problem to have, but, you know, you can figure better ways to, to solve that equation if, if you do the planning ahead of time. Yeah. I mean, you could have people saving 25% on their deferral and then paying 40 plus percent uh, when it comes to distribution time, not exactly how it was designed to work. Exactly. So let's hand it over to Cameron Hamilton, who is our uh, director of financial planning. Yeah, thanks, guys. So uh, my favorite article that I wrote in this three-year Athenium series uh, was one on charitable estate planning. Uh, I chose this as my favorite article because I have a passion for helping people with their charitable goals. Uh, And really, that's just a passion for helping people with their passions. Um, So when we go back three years to this concept of we're going to create this financial planning handbook and we scheduled out this Athenium, we did three volumes protect, plan, and prosper. And that was intentional because it mirrors how we take on a new relationship. We try to make sure we have the basics covered so the family can survive. And then we kind of move them up the spectrum and and add details that really help them thrive. Um, So I feel like charitable giving is is one of those. I think about my wife, Christy's a therapist. And if she took me back to Psych 101, we had this Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you know, food and shelter was at the bottom and the top is self-actualizing and achieving your potential. And I feel like when we get into charitable planning, that's one of those extras that really makes people feel like they're achieving their potential. And we've written about the benefits of, uh, you know, being giving and um, how a lot of our clients, I think we would all agree who give the most are, are the happiest because they just have a focus outside of themselves and they get to see the benefit of their hard work helping others, which is you know really what it's all about um, at the end of the day. So the article I selected again was charitable estate planning and you know estate planning is important long-term for people and I love integrating your charitable wishes into it. And just like any charitable planning, it's from my perspective all about we want to know as much as we can about your goals and then try to get creative and, and make the best possible outcome. So 
this article in, in particular, I kind of did a case study on something called a charitable remainder trust. So that's a trust that's drafted with the help of an attorney. Um, and so it's charitable remainder trust. So a charity gets the remainder uh, of some amount of assets at the end of a trust. The flip side of that is the donors can take income for some period during their life. So instead of a, a normal gift where you say, I have a, a big pot of cash or stock giving it away um, and, and there's a tax deduction, that's the end of it. We can add this trust structure to it. You take income on the, on the front end of your lifetime and then know the charity gets that benefit at the end. So, you know, in a, in a situation when we did one recently, it was a win, win, win. So the, the clients towards the end of their earning career, so they have that big income they have to pay tax on. When we make this gift, we can get a tax deduction now to match that up. Um, you know, we can increase income that's coming off of these assets that they want to earmark charitably. So that takes away from other needs they might have. And at the end of the day, we're really reallocating what would have been paying more tax on a certain asset to the federal government and allocate that amongst income to the client and then to the charity. Um, the other thing that made makes this a huge win in certain scenarios is having a low basis asset you can give. So, you know, uh, a, a good investment that's been held for a long time or real estate that's been depreciated or even a business, you can, you can fund these things with anything. Uh, if it's low basis, there's a big capital gains tax embedded in that. And when we give it to a charity, uh, they can sell that and you don't recognize it all on your tax return this year. We can spread that out over, over the lifetime of this and make it a lot more efficient. So, you know, in a situation like that, we know, hey, this client has a charitable goal and we also you know, knew a lot about their income and life cycle and we can say, this is a slam dunk that's going to help you help your charity pay less taxes. So, you know, that's why I love this article so much, but really just the ethos of charitable giving is the more we know, the better we can help. So that's why I like this article so much. I think we, I mean, what I would mimic that came across our entire office. One of the things that excites us the most is, you know, helping people facilitate what they want to achieve with, with the charitable giving. I mean, if you look at all the organizations, just the five of us are involved with in the nonprofit and charitable worlds, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's passionate from our standpoint. The easy advice from the financial planning world is save as much as you can and don't spend anything and don't give it away at all you know, the, the Scrooge type investing. Um, that's not us. You know, we want to help people meet their goals and um, whatever that may be. Um, so it's, it's exciting. You know, there's so many different avenues and, and methods for giving money and, and so many different organizations. Um, I, I think we're surprised by how clients are making gifts um, and, and why they make them. Talk a little bit about that and, and some of the surprises that we somewhat consistently see. Yeah, um, I think everybody has causes that they care about. Um, I, I think there's so many to give to, and it really just takes making something a priority. Um, and, and this kind of ties in with everything that we've been talking about, and Frank talked about budgeting and, you know, 
a good concept there is paying yourself first. So it's really about having a you know plan on the front end um, to make it happen. And that can be overwhelming. So unfortunately what happens, and I've been guilty of this in my life is, you know, you live through your, your, your month. And at the end we say, what's there to save, or we live through our year. And at the end, can I write a check? And what I think is not a good situation, but is very, really typical across the average American household is we talk to our CPA at the end of the year and they say, you should give X thousand dollars because that's going to be helpful to you. Um, and, and that's just not really the most impactful way to go about it. So, you know, that, that usually has you given cash, which I've kind of talked about. There's other assets like low basis assets that are better. So, um, it, it, charitable planning can be overwhelming and we're not here to say everybody needs to be giving a ton or giving now, but the best thing we can do is know about kind of your wishes on the front end. And when we see an opportunity like that, we can help you plan the best way to do it. Um, so I think just having those conversations, whether it makes a gift happen now, it, it helps people have a comfort uh, to be able to explore it and then get into it. I think that conversation point is so, so important. You know, uh, so many times people come to us with having already done things and we're like, Oh, there's a better way to do that. You know? So that conversation involving us. Absolutely. Can we, we talk about amongst ourselves uh, and with our clients, we talk about charitable giving um, all the time. We're very comfortable having that conversation. Um, but for many that's uh, charitable giving is a very sensitive subject. And uh, how should a client or prospective client uh, initiate a conversation with us about giving? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it can be intimidating and sometimes I'm intimidated because I have certain values and I don't want to, you know, my job is to take care of your interests. So I don't want to say, here's the, you know, charities that Cameron thinks are important and here's how much he thinks you should be giving. So the best thing that I would ask anybody to do is just share your values and hopes and dreams with me. And, you know, I think it can be a very private decision how much you give um, and, you know, I, I really respect that. So I just try to put out there that I feel like we have a great amount of knowledge on opportunities and any info we can get about what people desire and, you know, kind of their value system, we can help them optimize that. So anytime we have a greater spot at the table, I feel like we're going to give people a great result. So I'd just say, help me help you. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding um, about our industry in general and that it's all about the math and, and largely numbers are involved in the decisions we make. But one commonality that we've found among clients that we've done charitable planning work with is just the, just the positive benefit it gives to them and their family and knowing that they're you know, hopefully creating some sort of a charitable legacy and empowering or, or, or immediately benefiting um, a, a cause that they're passionate about or that their family is supportive of. I mean, it's, it's really a remarkable thing that you can't put a number on. I mean, it's just something that you can see the glow in them after, after you've, you've gone through that process. Yeah. And one thing I'll add there is that's great for the donors, but another big benefit that I don't think we always do a great job discussing is it helps them pass those values onto the kids. Mm -hmm. It sets an example for them 
uh, of being a good steward in their community. And I think that's, that's not always visible on the front end, but we've seen it kind of be accretive over the year and set a good example. Now the kids are doing it. And I think that if people would look back in hindsight, they'd say that was a huge benefit of, of starting this now. Yeah. Good point. I think we all feel a great responsibility to, to empower our clients as much as possible and have that conversation. I'm going to go ahead and give mine. Um, you know, one of the areas that I wanted to focus on and my favorite entry of, of the various ones um, that I contributed to the series was about long-term care and specifically long-term care and how you need to think about that as it relates to your portfolio as well as the cash flow that you have available to you. 20 years ago, long-term care planning was tricky uh, because it was hard to qualify for, uh, and it was rather expensive. Today, long-term care is still tricky because of those two reasons, but we also have a phenomenon going on where if you actually have a long-term care policy, more it's very likely, I should say, that you have received a premium increase and a not, a, a not insignificant one. Um, we've had clients that have received, these could have been policies, purchased, you know, 25 years ago, um, but today receiving premium increases 10, 20, 30, or even 40% in a given year. So they can't really cancel the policy on these clients, but they sure can raise the premiums to a point where it's become fairly prohibitive for them to continue to pay it. And so we look at long-term care planning as, as being most likely taken care of or, or hopefully taken care of as part of an otherwise strong financial plan. Because when we look at the different ways that you can cover your long-term care needs, um, which we define as you know, skilled nursing um, at some point, um, hopefully way later in your life, um, if you had um, certain activities of daily living that you were no longer able to accomplish on your own and you needed assistance, you could potentially qualify or need to go into a skilled nursing facility what type of financial backing or coverage would you have? So we look at the four main areas, which, which could do that. Uh, there's the traditional care, which is you own a policy and it says if you ever need care, it'll pay some benefit. Um, there is what's called asset-based care, which is sort of a newer type of policy. And that's basically you make a lump sum investment. Uh, and for that, you get some multiple of that in long-term care benefit. Uh, a very modern type of policy, um, which we have actually advocated for some clients, is a life insurance policy that actually has a rider inside of it that will allow you to advance some of the death benefit out to you if you ever needed skilled nursing. And then the fourth area uh, is self-insurance, which is you have enough financial resources, you have enough cash flow to adequately cover yourself. And of all four of those, number four is where we would love to see a client go. The, the downside to number four is that it does take a lot of preparation to get there. Um, if we sit down with a prospective client and they've retired and, they're certain, and they have a balance sheet, um, we're sort of stuck with the resources that they've accumulated. But if we're working with somebody that has some time prior to retirement, uh, oftentimes we can position them just to make sure that we've got uh, we're projecting a certain balance sheet or, or um, asset base that they'll have in the future. And the byproduct of that would be um, a, a significant cash flow that can help offset those, those long-term care expenses. Long-term care is a very odd type of insurance to own in, a, in the traditional sense. Um, 
these policies typically, if you don't use them, they go away. The downside to that is that they're often quite expensive, much like a whole life policy or, a, or a, any other type of life insurance policy that would last the rest of your life. So uh, in many cases, we've looked back over someone's life and seen, gosh, they've spent potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in premium and are receiving nothing back. Their family's receiving nothing back because they never needed a long-term care um, facility. So it's a, it's a very unusual type of insurance to plan around, but it, it really all starts with the financial plan because if we can create a robust financial plan for you, self-insurance should be the goal. So John, I, I've told many people that long-term care has been the most difficult piece to give advice on. Um, you know, it's, it's really age 45 to 70 on, on both ends of the spectrum. You start having the conversations early, you know, maybe somebody is in their ear, or showed them an illustration or told them they needed it or a family member has it. Um, but it's just to the, to the points you're making about the different options. I think it's, it's become really difficult um, to plan for. Talk a little bit why it's such a challenge and, and what the future headwinds are going to be to, to long-term care insurance. Yeah, good question. So if we just think statistically, and that these numbers sort of depending on the source sort of vary. So I'm going to kind of round them off to general averages that I've seen, but roughly half of people will need skilled care during their lifetime. And of that 50% or so that need it, only about 10% of those will stay in a long-term care facility for more than five years. That's generally the, the data that we see. Um, so what that creates is this huge spectrum of potential outcomes. So if we're sitting down with a 50-year-old, for instance, who's otherwise healthy and seems like they're going to live a normal life expectancy, it is a guess whether they will actually need skilled nursing in their future or not. There's certain sort of, you know, uh, family histories and things like that you can do to look at to sort of assess if they're more likely to need it um, than someone else. But that sort of blind target of need is the immediate problem. Uh, the other problem is just the changing landscape after you commit to a plan. So one of the issues that we've run into, uh, I know all of us have run into, um, there are some attorneys who are actively doing a lot of Medicaid planning, for instance, the idea to um, sort of reduce your resources down to some very minimal levels so that you could qualify for government care. Not a huge advocate of that type of planning. One, we'd like to see clients have a robust financial picture at the end of their life. So it sort of runs counter to how we think about financial planning. Second, and probably more important, the laws continue to change. And so I can assure you plans that were put in place a decade ago probably have been, those loopholes, so to speak, have been closed. Um, so that's a problem as well. And, and just obviously the cost. I mean, the cost has just continued to skyrocket. And that is one of the reasons that the insurance companies have been um, fairly restrictive on new application. I think the, 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 the landscape will change dramatically. I'm a huge advocate of the riders on the insurance policies in the right situations, just because at least we know either they're going to get some of it during their lifetime or their family will get the, the insurance benefit from it. Um, so we're setting up a blind target. Um, at least we know someone's getting the financial benefit from the plan they put in place. But I would still say that runs secondarily to, uh, uh, not, I would say not even a close second to, to a self-insured plan, which I think is the best, best thing you can do. 
Yeah, I think I think that's such a, a, a big issue is the cost and not knowing how much the cost is going to be. And if I could choose any kind of sector of the economy where the inflation is going to be higher than, you know, the, the normal CPI, it's going to be with some of these healthcare costs. So I agree. It's so tough. And you kind of touched on, on it a little bit about changes in the insurance industry, but you know, and we've been doing this for a while. So what do you think is the change in our strategy to kind of respond to how the, the insurance industry has evolved and us having to evolve with it in this yeah, I mean, some of it's some of the insurance industry's behavior, in my opinion, is a little disappointing. I mean, there were several companies that sort of held themselves out as carriers that had a long history and basically sort of promising without actually promising that they wouldn't increase their premiums. And and uh, and many uh, of, the, of the major carriers have, have actually done that, the highest rated carriers. Um, I think that has created a problem because it's difficult to endorse you know, for us to support a client taking on one of these policies if we don't know what their expense to that policy will be down the road. So anything that we can do that creates any degree of certainty to offset what is someone else's decision making down the road, I think that's a, that's a positive for our clients. We, um, I, I would hate to think that any plan that we put in place is largely going to be determined by someone else's, uh, you know, an insurance industry's decision, for instance, on, on how premiums might change. And I just, I, I do, I do think the premium or the, excuse me, the policy type structures will continue to evolve over time. It's clear to me that the insurance industry is, is kind of moving away from the traditional coverage. It still exists, no question, but it's, it's far more restrictive. Uh, and it's and again, quite expensive to, to undertake for a client. Um, so um, with that, I thought I'd go ahead and hand it back to Andy and he can wrap up today's podcast. Thanks, guys. And thanks for everybody um, getting on this call today. Um, so I think just as we finish up today, you know, why we did this is because we truly at our heart believe that financial planning is our differentiator. You know, financial planning is a loose term that gets, that gets used and thrown around in today's finance world. Um, and, and we really want to evidence that we are thinking about this in a, in a very deep way. We take it serious um, and our scope is very wide. Financial planning in our office is not just plugging your investments into a Monte Carlo simulation and giving you a 50 page report. It's so much more than that. And, and we really want to demonstrate to people um, how we think about things and also spark people's interest. As Cam said a couple times, the more we know about you, the better our relationship, the better we can do for you. So we want to provide different little tidbits to get people thinking. And then our hope is that you reach back out to us or in conversations that we routinely have with you, we can pick up on ideas and then, and then roll, roll with those. So, you know, if you look at our Athenium books, if you look at our videos, if you look at our weekly commentaries, if you look at these podcasts, you know, all these are done with the idea to educate people, to show all the different areas that we think about, that we can advise on, and really hopefully to, to generate a better outcome for clients. Our philosophy is if there's anything having to do with a dollar and you have questions about it, we want to creatively think about it, help build a plan, and help implement that plan for you. 
So with that said, you know, looking at the end of the year, we're obviously sitting in a, in a unique time, um, you know, in a pandemic that, you know, likely gets worse over the winter before it gets better. Um, running into an election that's, that's one of the most fierce ones I've seen in my lifetime. And I know there have been events, but this one is especially um, has people's attention. Um, so I think right now is a great time just to revisit current plans. You know, the, the markets have rebounded nicely from the spring. It's a great time to really just take a step back and say, am I doing all the right things right? Am I comfortable with where I'm going? Do I know where I'm going? You know, can I tell you if you're retired or nearing retirement, can, can you say with confidence where your next two years income is coming from? And, um, you know, or, or your first two years of retirement, where that's coming from? Are you making all the right decisions right? You know, th those are the things we think about for our clients. We generally have a good understanding of where our clients are going. But if our clients don't know that, we need to have a conversation. Or if you're not a client and you don't know that, we'd be welcome to a conversation. You know, as you look at the end of the year, it's a unique time period with no RMDs, weird tax year, just with so many different changes. It's a great time to be doing a tax projection now before the end of the year. Um, you know, gifting, bunching is a, is a big strategy now with where the standard deduction is. To Cam's point, pre-planning, having a reason for why you gift and having that be as impactful as you can. Um, you know, all those things are, are what we should be talking about now and, and talking about, you know, as we move through the end of the year and the beginning of next year. Um, so with that, we want to thank you guys for, for listening. Um, if you want a copy of any of the books, we've, we've sent those out to many people. Um, we're happy to, to send them out to anybody who you care about or anybody who you think could benefit from reading the information. Um, also, our weekly commentaries we send out. If you don't get that, let us know. Or if you want a family member or friend or colleague to get a copy of that, we're happy to add them to the list. Just email us at info at ballastplan.com, B-A-L-L-A-S-T-P-L-A-N, or feel free to call us. Phone number is 859-226-0625. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to talking to you guys soon. The content and opinions expressed during this conversation are those of the participants and do not represent financial advice, guidance, or a recommendation on behalf of the participants or Ballast Incorporated. You should not treat any opinion expressed as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of opinion, which may change as circumstances change. Ballast is not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided within. Opinions discussed are based upon information considered reliable at the time of recording. Such information is not warranted for its completeness or accuracy and should not be relied upon as such. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Listeners should be aware of the real risk of loss in investing in any security. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than they invested. Investments or strategies mentioned in this content may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended to be a recommendation appropriate for you. You must make an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned. Before acting on information discussed, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances, and Ballas strongly encourages you to seek advice from your own financial advisor, CPA, or attorney. Nothing discussed should be considered investment, tax, or legal advice.
Ballast Inc., also known as Ballast, is a registered investment advisor. Certain advisory persons of Ballast are also registered representatives of APW Capital Inc., also known as APW, which is a member of the FINRA and SIPC. Their address is 100 Enterprise Drive, Suite 504 in Rockaway, New Jersey, with postal code 07866. Their number is 1-800-637-3211. In their separate capacity as registered representatives, securities are offered through APW. Ballast and APW are not affiliated.